two scripture verses today. Um, one are verses from Ephesians chapter 6, and then 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 8, or chapter 5, verse 8. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Thank you very much, Becca. This is the Word of God. Now, I gotta say, I'm just very encouraged by our youth today. Um, excited for what God is doing in their life. But that said, you know, Happy Valentine's Day. Um, Josh had told me that I should introduce the service today by saying, you know, to greet your spouse, spouse, with a holy kiss. <laughs> and once again, last warning, gentlemen, have something planned tonight. Um, Love, today is Valentine's Day, and it is a day that we kind of, we, we focus on love. Love is an interesting word, right? Because, I mean, I can say I, I love pizza. I love my brother, Brent. I love my wife, Becca. I love Jesus. And I mean something completely different with each and every one of those. If not, that would be super weird. Um, that word love in the English, there's so many definitions, and dictionary.com had 21 different definitions for that one word, love. No wonder our world, our nation, is so confused about love. It confuses love with control and control with love. After all, if you don't agree with me, you don't love me, you hate me. That is something that's preached much more than a God-based selfless love. That if you do not agree, if you do not affirm everything I am about, then you must hate me. It has, become, it has become a word that Satan has confused over and over and over again, and he loves the confusion that he causes. He's been trying to confuse humans about love ever since the beginning because he tried to confuse Adam and Eve about God's love. Did God really say you couldn't eat of any tree? He tried to confuse them that God was holding out on them, that God did not have their best. So when I tell you God loves you, God loves you. I hope it hits hard, because I don't think it does. I think it almost seems kind of trite. People mock it. People make silly jokes about it. But it is so powerful. God loves you. When I say that, what images come to your mind? We're in church, so you probably made me think of the cross. Maybe you think of the manger. Maybe you think of other religious iconography. If you were around my age... You probably watch a show called Touched by an Angel. And you remember the Irish angel, right? God loves you. 
I like the Irish accent, and I couldn't resist by saying that. <laughs> but what we mean when we say this is words, these words cannot express what it truly means. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. When we read that, do you read yourself in the world? God so loved the world. It is so much more glorious, cosmic, and personal than we could ask or think. It is bigger than hell insurance, more personal than the heights of the most intimate worship service you've ever been to yet. When I tell you God loves you, I have made a statement that is beyond understanding, and if you think you understand it in its entirety, you have only proven your greater ignorance. He does not love you because you are good. He does not love you because you act in a certain way. He does not love you because you believe the right things. He does not love you because you go to the right church. He does not love you because you vote a certain way. What explanation is there that God, why does God love us? There is none other than this. He loves us because he loves us. He does not love you because you love him because he first loved you. What glorious times we have when we get to sit together and we get to talk about the incredible love of God. We could talk about man's love, but we know it's impure. We hear story after story of divorce after divorce of all these things of when love fails, but we are told that love never fails because we are told we are called to a greater love, a cosmic love, the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. This is the good news, the gospel of our salvation. Today's piece of the armor is the helmet of salvation. I love it because I get to preach the gospel to you, but I preach the gospel to you every week. A lot of people think, well, the gospel is just kind of our ticket inside the club. Once we're inside the club, now we can talk about the deep things of Christ. There is nothing deeper than the gospel. There is nothing deeper than the gospel. Romans 11, I mean 1, chapter 1, verses 5, 15, and 16. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Salvation is our helmet. We are in a series on the armor of God. The first three pieces of the armor of God are preceded with the word with the verb having, meaning it is expected that you already have these things in place. Think of a soldier of any time. You have certain parts of your uniform, of your gear, you're always going to have on you. For the Roman soldier, of course, when they are when they are ready for battle, are going to have their shoes on. We have our feet fitted with the gospel of peace. They have the belt of truth. Jesus said that he came to testify to the truth, and everybody who's on the side of the truth is on his side. We are marked by that belt as well. To have the to have having the breastplate of righteousness in place. To have what protects our vital organs, righteousness, the righteousness that comes from cooperation with the Holy Spirit. The next three are preceded by the verb um, I can find this in my notes here. Um, are preceded with the verb to put on. Meaning it is things that we take up, it is things that we, we, we have together. We have, of course, the, the uh, shield of faith that we take up in all circumstances to distinguish the, the attacks from the evil one. Today is the helmet of salvation. 
The Helmet of Salvation. Talking about the Helmet of Salvation, those of you who may not have seen this series before or may be new to it, I've explained before, when Paul is talking about um, the armor, when he's talking about armor, the reality of those who lived back then was the Roman Empire. And when they thought of armor, when they thought of a soldier, they thought of a Roman legionary. So I have Rocky, our, Rocky the Roman. If he's ready, he can come on out. And we have him fully decked out today. Come on out, Rocky the Roman. I've been waiting for this for a long time. See all the armor. Now we're, we're, we're done actually with the armor. We're about to go into the offensive weapons that God gives us. But the armor we have on is, uh, is all the defensive ones. Um, we don't put on the gospel, gospel shoes so we can stomp on things. Um, so we have the armor. We have the helmet of salvation now. Um, I'm going to come down here by you, bro. <laughs> so, interesting couple of interesting facts here. This, this helmet is um, known as the Galia, which, is, which was invented after the Gaelic Wars um, that Rome was in shortly before the time of Jesus Christ. Um, it is a replica, so you probably do not want to get into a battle with a bunch of Gaelic soldiers. Um, well, Rocky doesn't anyway with it. But you can kind of understand the design, um, especially the design changes in this Gaelic, Gaelic, um, Gaelic armor, um, helmet, that is. Onto that side. Um, the plume was perhaps not standard amongst Roman legionaries, but it was super cool, so I wanted him to wear it. So thank you for that. Um, you can kind of see on here, you don't have a lot of flat surfaces on this helmet. And in fact, the actual one would even be less, because the idea is not to take blows head-on, which would transfer all that energy into your neck, but it's for them to glance off. It wasn't perfect, it wasn't as good as, for, for instance, the samurai helmet, which is basically all, um, all angles. There are some improvements in this particular helmet over some of the other Roman helmets. My favorite, by the way, my favorite piece of any armor set is the helmet because it's the most distinctive and it looks super cool. My favorite helmet, bar none, though, is probably the Greek hopolite one, and that's the one that has the nose guard. But this one is better for what they did. The Romans um, did not, I, I think I've said this before, and it was just for expedience's sake, they did not gather together in phalanxes. It was actually their formation was called the manipole. And it was like a phalanx with arms and legs is what they called it. So the improvements they made to the helmet were because of this. Um, one of those improvements is, you see in front of his face, he has nothing in front of it. So if somebody had like a war club, boom. That doesn't seem like much of an improvement, right? But the Roman army was more concerned about the army itself, not the individual soldier. So the maniple um, formation was a dependent on being able to see your commanding officer giving you warnings, giving not warnings, giving you instructions on what you're supposed to be doing in the formation. So Rocky right, can see me pretty well. The Greek hoplite, it was just about the enemy in front of you. We also have the ear holes, so that you can hear orders being yelled at you. The Greek hoplite um, helmet and the former uh, uh, Roman helmets, you couldn't hear anything because the helmet was over your ears. Here he can hear what I'm saying to him, even if he presents like he can't. <laughs> Finally, the cheek guards here. I think the cheek guards are very interesting because they make you think like their primary purpose is to protect the cheek. But if I had a sword right now and I smacked Rocky across the face, maybe it would protect him, maybe it wouldn't, it would hurt a lot. They actually had a very interesting um, function to them. So Rocky, if I had a sword and I was going to come at you and I was going to take a swipe at your neck, what would you do? <coughs> Just stand there and take it? Or shrug? There we go. So 
I don't know if you guys saw this or not. When he does that, and because this is recreated armor, it's not actual armor, the cheat guard makes a brace with the rest of the armor, stopping somebody from a decapitating attack. It was an easy way and an expensive and a lighter way than simply having your whole head covered in armor. Um, well, thank you very much, Rocky the Roman. Yeah. In Ephesians, we are told to put on salvation like a helmet. This seems confusing because you don't get to this point in the armor of God without being saved. In fact, you are not even in the battle unless you're saved. So why do we put on salvation, you know, towards the end? And it's the last piece of the armor before we get into the offensive um, functions of the armor. So why is salvation all the way at the end here? Um, and do we, we constantly put on salvation like we become unsaved and saved every single week? Well, not at all. You are, you're not even fighting on the right side until you're saved. So why is salvation put on so far on the list? You know, if that's confusing for you, how about Romans 13, 11? And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up for your, from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. When we think of salvation, we think of something we did in the past, right? You know, we went up to the altar, I raised my hand, I said this, and now I know I'm saved. But Paul's saying here, our salvation is now nearer now than when we first believed. Isn't salvation something you do and now you are saved? Yes, it is. Why is Ephesians, why, why is in Ephesians, why are we told to take up salvation? Well, let me share with you three aspects of salvation. Salvation goes so much deeper than hell insurance. It goes so much deeper than we could ever ask or think or imagine. There are three aspects to salvation I want to share with you today. It's the final aspect that Paul is referring to here when we put on salvation. The first one, we are saved from the penalty of sin. This is understood in the phrase, we have been saved. If you are a believer today, if you repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. When you decided to repent and believe, you are saved from the penalty of sin. This is called the doctrine of justification. Justification. You stand before God as just. A misunderstanding of this is to say that you stand before God just as you have never sinned. It's better than that. You stand before God as just, as righteous. With a righteousness you did not earn yourself, but Christ earned for you. That is the past aspect of our salvation. You were saved. You are being saved. You are not perfect. The Holy Spirit is now in the process of making you look more like Jesus Christ. This is called the doctrine of sanctification. You are being saved. You are being saved from the power and dominion of sin currently. That is, as we get closer to Christ, sin has less and less of a hold on us in this life. Finally, you will be saved from the presence of sin. This is known as the doctrine of glorification. You have been saved from the penalty. You are being saved from the power. You will be saved from the very presence of sin. This is the doctrine of glorification. 
This was the great hope of the early church. It is our great hope today that we will be resurrected like our Lord was resurrected. And we will live with him to rule and to reign forever and ever. It's the end of Revelation. It is amazing. When Paul is talking about putting on salvation, this is the aspect of salvation he's referring to. It is to put on the hope of salvation. Paul wrote about the helmet of salvation in another letter. Becca had read that earlier, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We have a confidence in knowing that we will be with Christ once we die. But there is a greater hope that one day all things will be put under the dominion of God himself. This makes us bold. This makes us courageous. The hope of salvation, knowing that Christ is the final victor, makes us bolder than we could ever imagine. So today I want to tell you, talk to you about the greatest weapon against this helmet. Living in victory as opposed to living in defeat. And how to put on the helmet. Let's talk about the greatest weapon against this helmet. Now for the Roman, the Romans' enemies, uh, the Rome's enemies, they weren't stupid. Now they thought they were stupid, in fact they called them barbarians. If you are of European descent, that's what they called your ancestors. They were barbarians. They used Babel, um, which is you know super arrogant, right? And um, so they, they, you know, they thought they thought they were stupid. They thought they were idiots. But these uh, these European um, barbarians actually developed weapons to go around the Roman armor and to strike at the he- to strike at the head. One of these weapons was the Romferia. Romferia. This was a very large sword. Very large sword with a slightly curved blade. The blade itself was four feet long. Four feet long. With a handle of one to two feet long. It was historically even seen, I mean, they saw it as a sword. We kind of see it now as a pole axe because it was so incredibly long. Why would it be so long? Because you had a big old shield you needed to get around. It was slightly curved, so the striking power, the piercing power could be there. And if they could get around the shield or cut apart the shield, they could strike at the helmet. And if it was a dead-on strike, they would kill the legionari that they were that they were um, aiming they were aiming at. So the Romans, they had to be they, the the legionari, they had to be wise. So they had to be ready for the blow coming in. So when the blow came in, they didn't let it land flat. They just let it glance off. Because even if it didn't puncture, that much power behind a blow would break your neck. So you had to be ready. You had to be alert when you were making your stand. You probably see a lot of the correlation between our between between that and um, our struggle in this life as we stand for Christ. The hope of our salvation, this helmet, it's a confidence of salvation. Last week, Santiago Guerrero spoke about some of the cults he ministered to. How they deny that you could know that you are saved. It's very clear in the Bible that you can know of your salvation. Amen. So, my question to you is this. The ceiling falls in today, crush you, you're dead. Do you know where you're going, or is there fear there? You have a confidence in where you should be going. Amen. That when you pass beyond this veil of tears, which is a poetic way of saying dying, that you are safe in the arms of Christ, or you're like, well, I don't know. This week I wasn't really righteous. I didn't pray enough. It could be that you truly are not saved and today is the day of salvation and I do not want to get in the way of the Holy Spirit of convicting you, of repenting and turning to Jesus Christ and knowing that you are saved 
But if you know that you are saved, if you know you have a relationship with Christ, you are undergoing an attack from the enemy. That attack is fear. It's not of the Lord. It's not every kind of fear. There is a very misunderstood, out-of-context verse. When it comes to verses being taken out of context, this is one of the best examples. Most of the time, when we want to take a verse out of context, we just omit the chapter, the verses around it, the greater clarity that may come from another verse. With this verse, we don't even include the second half of this verse. Um, We use it more as a spell against fear to gather our courage. You've probably heard this before. Perfect love drives out all fear. That's even misquoted, and it's not the whole verse. This is how I've heard it most of the time, and even that quote itself is not even quoted right. And the problem with this is we use this as kind of a spell or a litany against fear, and it's so, so much more than that. And it really makes us, when we, when we use that, when we have to like walk across like a, like a high wire, and we're like, you know, perfect love drives out all fear, we then miss the principal fear it's talking about. This principal fear is the greatest weapon against the helmet of salvation that we're talking that we are talking about today. In Frank Herbert's book, Dune, there's a litany or a mantra against fear that I quite liked. I committed it to memory long ago. I don't remember exactly now, but it is, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will not, I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. When the fear is gone, um, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. So I committed this to memory because I thought it was funny. I thought it was interesting. I think it's really unfortunate when we make this verse that. Because it's not, it's not what it is. Here in its entirety, 1 John 4, 17-19, I included the verses around it. This is how love is made complete amongst us. So that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out, not all fear, but fear, a specific, primordial fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. I like it that the helmet of salvation lands on Valentine's Day. That worked out really well. We are made perfect in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Because God loves me, I don't fear judgment. And anytime I am meant to fear judgment, that is a false guilt that I do not need to hold on to. My judgment, my guilt was placed on Christ on the cross. I will not cower from anything. The chief existential human dread of all time is what happens beyond this earth. Thomas Jefferson said the one thing that kept him up at night, this isn't a perfect quote, but it's pretty close, is that God is just and his justice will not sleep forever. There is an existential human dread that one day I will have to give an account for what I've done in this life. And no matter how much we try to dress it up with so many ideologies, philosophies, and psychology, we know that we are all, every single one of us, are guilty before God. And we need a Savior. Amen. Amen. Those of us 
who have tasted and seen, we have this hope of salvation that we know that when everything is said and done, we are on the winning side, and the devil wants to take that away from you to make you a coward. Is it any surprise when it talks about the list of the contents of the lake of fire, it mentions cowards. He has not made you a coward, but he wants you to live in victory. So there is a difference between living in victory and living in defeat. I'm happy they went over the the, um, the story of David and Goliath with you this last week. Because that's the example I'm going to use from Scripture about living in fear, living in defeat, versus living in victory and confidence. Let's start with living in defeat. 1 Samuel 17, 8-11. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come to me. If he is able to fight me, fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, of the Philistine, they were dismayed and were greatly afraid. You may have heard this story before. Two armies come into a fight, and all of a sudden, some WWE reject comes out and starts talking big. <laughs> They're there for war, and he, he makes a proposal. I mean, they could just start the battle, right? Saul himself, who's a head and shoulders over everybody else, could fight this man. But they are terrified, they are paralyzed. With fear. They hear this, they grumble, they complain, they get angry, but nobody does anything. So many believers live in such an unjustifiable fear. David, a boy at the time, sees what kings and warriors couldn't, that Goliath may seem big, but he's very small. You look at the news and you think, Dear God in heaven, how is this ever going to turn around? How are you ever going to be glorified in this mess? All your enemies look so big, what am I supposed to do? Like those soldiers, we shrink away, we, we are paralyzed by this false fear, but our salvation is near, it is nearer than when we first believed. What does it look like to live in defeat for us today? We can see in the story what it looked like for them. They get angry, they pout, but they do nothing, so who cares? What does it look like when a believer is living in defeat? It looks like the person who can't stand on the truths of God's word because of their past. They allow the accuser to speak to them. Well, you can't, you can't talk to your kid about drinking. You used to drink all the time. Well, that's an attack from the enemy against the hope of your salvation. Keep your helmet on. You don't want to look, you don't want to look like a hypocrite, do you? Well, you would be a hypocrite if what your point is is that you say, thank you, God, I'm not like all of these. But you wouldn't be a hypocrite if you pound your chest and say, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And you tell other sinners where to find such a great salvation. That's right. Mr. T, yes, that Mr. T has a Twitter. He wrote on there something I thought very encouraging. He said, I am a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That's right. That's a man who has a helmet of salvation on. A defeated Christian is one that compromises their consciences whenever it's convenient. If I came to your work tomorrow 
And I had that ring from Lord of the Rings where I was invisible. Would I recognize you? You didn't know I was there? Would you seem like everybody else or would you seem somewhat different? A defeated Christian screams at social media and at the news, but they are powerless and unwilling to do anything even pray. What about one who lives in victory? 1 Samuel 17, 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Paul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. This battle is a battle that's already won. That is what the hope of our salvations are all, all about. This right. battle is already won. David knew that God, who was faithful in the past, would be faithful in the future. And he had faced out greater things than this. So oftentimes when we get to a place of temptation or of fear, we forget that God has saved you from much worse than that. Amen. He saved you from your very sin. Right. So that's using the past aspect of salvation to inform the future aspect of salvation and the current aspect of salvation. Which is that he has saved me from so much greater than this before. David wasn't worried about some guy. He had taken a bear by his beard and struck him until he was dead. If you want to know what kind of bear, what kind of lion we're talking about, you're going to have to go back into like the website and find where I preached on this because I'm not going to go over that again. But suffice it to say, it wasn't like my cat bear. It was an actual bear bear. He struck it until it was dead. This, this boviating fool who has his spear, who has his helmet, who has all these things... David wasn't intimidated. He had the armor of God. It's a game that is already won. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If you are living in victory, you live in confidence. You do not live with despair, but joy that is unspeakable and courage. You fulfill the commands of your Lord despite how big the enemy is. You love God, you love people, and you preach the gospel. So how do you put this helmet on? Romans 8.31 Excuse me while I find that in my translation. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say in these things? That God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as is written. For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I didn't have in my notes to actually read all of that, but I don't know how you stop. And all these things we are more than conquerors. Amen. 
We are more than conquerors. What shall separate us from the love of God that's in Christ? If you read the news and you are filled with fear, remember the love of God. When the enemy comes in like a flood with all of his accusations, remember what shall separate me from the love of Jesus Christ. Not height nor depth, not things present nor things in the future. Nothing shall separate me from the love of God. When I remember these things, I put on the helmet and nothing is piercing that helmet. It makes me bolder than I could ever imagine because I know whom I have believed in and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep all that I committed to him against that day. Amen. There are so many stories of people who put on the helmet and were able to do things that nobody could ever even imagine. In the Old Testament, it was those who won by the strength that God had given their arms, their legs, and martial abilities. In the New Testament, though, it is those who emulate Christ who go to the headsmen, who go to the stake, who go to the firing squads, who go to all these things because they did not consider their love for self to be even comparable with their love for Jesus Christ, but endured so they may have a greater resurrection. Worship team, you can come up at this time. I'm be ending this with an example of somebody who put on his helmet. There was, in the 4th century, there was a monk named Telemachus. He is from Asia, and like most monks, most monks, they join a monastic order so they could get away from all the sin of the world. So they could focus on Jesus Christ, so they could focus on God's words, and, and grow in their faith, not to be part of this world and all of its sin. So Telemachus, he's tending his garden, and he feels the call of the Lord to go to Rome. Now, by the 4th century, Rome was Christian. Um, the Christians there, they went from one of the most persecuted minorities to being the majority when Constantine the emperor had a vision of a, of a cross coming down. He then put this cross on their, on their shields and they ended up winning a battle. So he enforced Christianity. It's not the best way of evangelism. I don't think it really took. But he enforced Christianity throughout the whole Roman Empire. So Rome was, on the surface, Christian. They had outlawed those games of death, those gladiatorial games, twice. Never quite took. I think we can understand that as Americans. We can have laws, but unless somebody's going to enforce them, we might as, pretend, we might as well not pretend that they're actual laws. Telemachus felt the urging of God to go to Rome, and when he entered the city, he saw everybody, the whole place was in, was in commotion, was in excitement. The legions had just won a major victory, and everybody was headed to the Colosseum. Well, what for? The games had been outlawed twice before. Telemachus, he gets to the Colosseum, and he looks out there on the sands of the Colosseum that had been drenched with the blood of the martyrs from the first century till that point. And in Christian Rome, he is horrified to find out these games are going on. Two men, or many men, face the image of the emperor or to the emperor himself and say, we who are about to die salute you. They then engage in combat until one of them is dead. I can go a little further into this, but I, it, doesn't, it doesn't really go into the point. Telemachus looks out and he sees this blood sport and he is filled with such a powerful conviction. He starts shouting at those who are around him, in the name of Christ, stop. 
If I were to paraphrase what he was saying, was, is to is do not celebrate God's mercy in this victory by shedding innocent blood. In the name of Christ, stop. And I'm willing just to shout out to people around him, this little Asian monk jumps into the Colosseum. He lands onto the sands and he starts shouting at the gladiators and to the people who should know better in the name of Christ. Stop. The crowd thinks this is a bit of comedy, so everybody stops and starts laughing at it, but he doesn't stop. The crowd becomes angry and more angry, and the, and the gladiators start engaging in combat. And what happens next, we're not exactly quite sure. It's been told in different ways. Whether or not the crowd literally stoned Telemachus to death from the stands, or if he was ran through with a spear or cut in two by one of the gladiators, what we know is that the blood of this man soaked into the soil that had received the blood of so many other martyrs. And with his dying breath, he said, In the name of Christ, stop. And his blood was the last to be mixed with those sands. Because after that, the whole assembly became dead quiet. People started leaving, and the emperor really did outlaw finally those games. To believe that you have no impact in this world, dear Christian, is false. That is, that is certainly what the devil wants us to think. That you have no impact, you're just tilting at windmills. Just keep your faith to yourself. But God has given us good works before the foundation of the world. Amen. For us to walk in. Right. What effect they will have, that's up to God. But we have a purpose in our life like Telemachus had in his and you become bold, you became ready for that when you know that you live in victory. You live in a future victory, in a current victory, and in a past victory. We're going to be ending our time today with communion. First, we're going to be, the, the worship team is going to be leading us in a song. Um, Josh and Bruce, wait, not Josh, um, Wayne and Bruce, if I could, if I could uh, prevail upon you um, to um, get the communion ready here. I will pray over the symbols of Christ's body and blood. Then our ushers, they will distribute them. And we'll be taking them together. Wait to eat and drink until, until um, I give instruction. Here at uh, Faith Church, we practice open communion. That means that you do not have to be a member of our church to take communion. But you have to be a member of Christ's church. Meaning, do you know of your salvation? But what I've been talking about this very day, if not today is the day of salvation. Pray right now. Cry out to God. He will save you and take communion for the first time with your brothers and sisters. If you refuse to, then do not take communion. There's dire penalties for those who take it in an unworthy manner. Thank you very much. I'll go ahead and pray over the symbols of the body and blood of Christ. Lord God, as we are about to take just the symbols of your body and blood, we're reminded of your great love for us. That you so loved the world. You gave the Son whom you were well pleased to die a sinner's death for my sake. Bless these symbols of your body and blood.